the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Kerry Katona and I'm with <laughs> Natasha <laughs> Hamilton and Jenny Frost. Oh, who's your favourite? No, let's, let's not get into that. Let's not get into that. I had to look them up. I didn't even know their names. I hope, I hope I've said oh. Kerry Katona correctly. I would actually have forthright opinions on this. But anyway, let's go. <laughs> let's crack on. Well, that's coming up in part four. Um, how, how are you both? My name is Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney and Daniel Freib. Hello, Hello chaps. Reunited. The tide is high. The tide is high and we're moving on. That was a Blondie song covered by Atomic Kitten, wasn't it? Anyway, let's go. Extraordinary. Let's go. Um, Extraordinary. It's been a long time. I feel a bit rusty. You might have to help me through this, guys. Um, I caught up with my cycling podcast on Sunday, um, having really disengaged for a few weeks. Um, so I think a lot of this episode will be taken up by Corrections Corner, to be honest, because uh, quite a few bloopers, quite a few blunders well, made by one, you, Pear, in my absence. The, the first one... We can have now because it's the tide is high. I'm holding on. I've just looked up the, the, the lyric <laughs> of the offending I, song. Not what I had in mind. No. Now we'll get onto the mistakes later on. I don't want to. I don't want to get started on a sour no, no. Lionel, you've been on holiday as well, haven't you? Only for a few days, Rich. Yeah, just just recovering from all my mistakes. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Uh, if, I can, anyway, if I can get um, my if I can get my blow in first, Rich, I saw pictures of you going out for a bike ride in Spain, and um, as far as I'm concerned, it should be illegal for anyone with legs that pale to ride a bike. <laughs> Actually, I, I think I, I'm more tanned than I've ever been in my life, and that that's a fact. Uh, so slightly, if they still look pale, then there, there's no hope for me at all. A slightly darker shade of alabaster now. <laughs> I think it was a filter. I think it was a fil- filter put on the. The picture, um, Daniel, just to lull my opponents into a false sense of security. Uh, no, I did go out for a bike ride in Spain with Joel Laverick, our audio diarist, um, who pedaled over from Girona and took me and my brother um, uh, along the coast for a very nice bike ride. Uh, I had a few goes at some of the some of the climbs out there. Um, a lot of the King of the Mountains records held by the likes of James Knox didn't really get that close. James Knox, um, on but that, it on, was a lot of fun. On that subject, we all know that Pog has opted, opted out of the Vuelta España, having originally been penciled into the start list. And, well, it's a good thing for everyone who is riding the Vuelta, because I, I did some Strava snooping the other day, and Pog went out for another uh, ride around Monaco, Nice, a couple of days ago, and he absolutely destroyed a KOM uh, 2.5 kilometer climb approximately, I think it was a climb to a golf course that was previously held by Richie Port. And, you know, if you scroll down the top 10, it was a lot of the top boys in the peloton, but Pog clearly still firing. So he, he destroyed the KOM, then shot a 64 around the golf course <laughs> and then uh, just went back and set some kind of open water swimming and record swam, swam in the, to in the med. Yeah. <laughs> in, in 25 minutes. Well, chaps, um, shall we? We have got a lot to talk about. We're looking ahead to the Vuelta. I can't really believe that the Vuelta is almost upon us. Um, it is earlier than usual, isn't it? I think it's about a week earlier than, than usual. But it feels as if the uh, the tour's just just finished and we're just recovering from that. But we're about to go again with the Vuelta and we'll be doing our usual 
daily coverage and we'll tell you a bit more about that later on and we'll look ahead to the Vuelta a lot in this episode. We'll look back a bit on the Olympic Games. We'll hear from Ethan Hayter, a member of the British team, silver medalist in the Madison. Uh, but before any of that, Lionel, do you have a new trend up for us? Yes, I do, Rich. As you say, we'll talk about the Olympics a bit later on, um, but the track programme concluded at the weekend and well here are some of the highlights so these are my highlights really i thought the italian team pursuit story was uh, extraordinary not least because it got daniel interested in track cycling for the grand total of three minutes and 42 seconds uh, the world record time for the italian quartet an absolutely extraordinary final turn or, or decisive turn by filippo ganna to see off the danes in a sort of uh, tug of war type final Con- some controversy before that because Denmark were um, advanced through to the final after a crash in their uh, match against Great Britain where Frederick Rodenberg basically rode into the back of Charlie Tanfield of Great Britain, uh, probably not realising that Tanfield was the third man, so still live in the race. He hadn't been, uh, well, he had been dropped by the other two, but he, he was still the counting rider. And uh, with with some degree of controversy, Denmark were advanced to the gold medal final uh, to Sorry, face Lionel, the Italians. Is it, is that, does it, would it have been okay to ride into him had he not been a live rider? No, of live course in the race not. Anyway. No, of course not. But what I mean is... Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> no, riding, just, just clearing that up. Yeah, no, riding into the back of somebody on the track is uh, is really bad form, isn't it? Um, but, uh, yeah. No, what I meant was that there was a sort of an altercation afterwards, or, or one-sided altercation. Can you have a one-sided altercation? No, you can't really. But uh, Rodenberg remonstrated with Tanfield, and, and I suspect, and this is speculation, but I suspect he thought that uh, Tanfield should have been up the banking uh, away from the racing line, thinking that because he was detached from the rest of the Great Britain team, he was the fourth man, whereas in fact he was a third man. So uh, confusion all round, really. And, uh, well, Denmark uh, got to got through to the final, but the Italians were, you know, well, they were absolutely outstanding. And even, Daniel, you were impressed, weren't you? Yes, I was. Um I, uh, I I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, didn't I, that the sort of well slightly um, disrupted build-up in terms of this ongoing story about the national team road coach um, Davide Cassani, and well, we said a couple of weeks ago that he was probably about to lose his job. In fact, he's been giving his marching orders even before the European Championships and the World Championships coming up. There's going to be a sort of caretaker manager, we think, for the Italian road national team there. But um, meanwhile, Marco Villa, the former track rider, well, he's been getting a lot of credit, rightly so, for the fantastic Italian um, team track performance at the Olympics, not only the men's team pursuit, but also, well, Viviani in the Omnium, who himself, as I think I said on Twitter, he deserves a, a lot of credit himself because he was really the, the sole standard bearer um, for many years, Viviani. He continued to to dedicate a lot of time and resources to the track. And I, th- I think that was quite inspirational. And, and now there very much is a sort of federation project. And it, these are three, well, four... I mean, I don't even know how many riders take part in the team pursuit, but it's a, it's quite a young team, the gold medal winning team, or a very young team, in fact. And of course, the next Olympics are only three years away, so they will no doubt be formidable there as well in Paris. 
The German women's team pursuiters broke the world record in qualifying and in the knockout round and in the final to win gold. That was a really impressive performance too. Great Britain's Katie Archibald and Laura Kenny absolutely obliterated the Madison. I think they scored points in every single sprint. They were on fire from the start. Uh, The Dutch... Uh, did very well in the sprinting. The Netherlands got three gold medals, uh, the men's team sprint, an individual sprint, and the women's Kieran. And success for road riders as well. Michael Morkoff teamed up with Lassie Norman Hansen to win the Madison for Denmark. And Matt Walls of Bora Hansgrohe and Great Britain won the men's Omnium. And finally, Jason Kenny, seventh gold medal in Olympic Games for Jason Kenny and he won the Kieran. So that was the track cycling. Daniel, you can stand down until Paris 2024 on that. Um, lots of road racing going on as we head towards the Vuelta, which starts on Saturday, of course, uh, warming up with the Vuelta at Burgos. The Vuelta starts in Burgos this weekend, and it was won by Mikel Lander ahead of Fabio Aru, Mark Padun, and Pavel Sivakov. Uh, A couple of stage wins for UAE team Emirates rider Juan Sebastian Molano. Uh, Roman Bardet got his first win for DSM. In fact, his first pro win outside of France. And Hugh Carthy of EF Education Nippo won the final stage there. Uh, The Tour of Poland is underway. So far, we've had... Another bit of trivia, Lionel. Um, You mentioned that that um, bit of history that was made by Roman Bardet certainly in the context of his career I believe that Lander took the overall it was 10 days I'm sorry 10 years to the day since his first pro win at the Vuelta a Burgos I think he won the stage to uh, Lagunas de Neila in 2011 and um, yeah he won the overall at the weekend uh, the Tour of Poland is underway. So far, we've had a sprint win for Phil Bauhaus of Bahrain. And Joao Almeida uh, got his first World Tour win. Everyone will remember him from last year's Giro d'Italia, which he led for a couple of weeks. It's just been announced that he's leaving De Koenig Quickstep to join UAE Team Emirates. Uh, a bit more on their transfer activity later on in the podcast. But Almeida won the stage and is now in yellow. A few more days to go, but he's leading uh, Diego Ulisi and Matej Mohoric. Uh, in the Tour of Poland. The Tour of Denmark's also got underway. Dylan Groenewegen won stage one ahead of Mark Cavendish and Giacomo Nizzolo. And as I said, the transfer window uh, opened last week was slightly underwhelming last week, but this week UAE Team Emirates and Bora Hansgrohe have been very, very busy and we will talk about that in our transfer section. But some other uh, slightly uh, surprising moves, I thought Esteban Chavez is going to EF Education Nippo. Um, Peter Sagan's move to Total Energies is confirmed along with three other riders from Bora Hansgrohe, Daniel Oss, Machi Bodnar and Rudiger Selig. John Degenkolb is going to DSM and Michael Storer, who we mentioned had won a race, the Tour de Lan, a couple of weeks ago. He is going to Group Armour from DSM. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Uh, Very grateful to them for their support. And my holiday last few weeks, it wasn't all... It wasn't all enjoying myself, relaxing on the beach. I did uh, pay a visit to 
the Novo Nordisk Talent ID Camp in Normandy, quite close to where I live, and so we took a trip up, up there. Um, Novo Nordisk's team, of course, are all diabetics, and they, as well as the professional team, they have a development team, and every year they do a Talent ID Camp to to find new talent. Um, and so I took a, a visit there. Phil Sutherland was there, the, the founder and chief executive at Super Sapiens, um, who also um, set up the Novo Nordisk team. Um, and I spoke, among other people, <coughs> to Dan Holt, the manager of the development team, about what they were hoping to achieve at the ID, Talent ID Camp. I'm Daniel Holt. I'm the development uh, program manager for Team Novo Nordisk. Uh, I help manage the Talent ID Camps here. So um, we're in Normandy at this uh, Talent ID Camp. Tell me exactly what the, the purpose of this, this camp is. We have the professional team, and then we have our development team, which is the feeder team for the professional team. And we always are filling new spots. And so really this is just the tryout camps to qualify for their, our development program and development team. And, I mean, how do you identify the riders in the first place who are part of this camp here? How do you, um, obviously you're looking for, for, for diabetic athletes, but how do they come to your attention or, or how do you find them? Yeah. Well, uh, in years past, we've just had people apply to our website online, and they just uh, present to us their, their story and their, their resume. Uh, from there, they, we kind of just can see what their training is, and they upload training every month, and we keep an eye on them through that. Uh, it's been interesting, actually, through the whole COVID experience that we've actually switched to an online platform through the Sufferfest, and we have uh, two virtual camps now, and people qualify through our virtual camps in order to come to our physical in-person camp. So it's it's uh, it's kind of forced us to get with the program of of uh, the virtual experience on the bike, and um, through that whole whole experience, it's actually been pretty valuable because we can really see how strong the riders are. The virtual stuff is is great for finding a really strong and physically gifted athlete. Um, but sometimes I think, as everybody knows, that doesn't really translate to the road. Um, the, I think having the in-person camp is invaluable, especially because, I mean, that's what we do. We, we race on the road. We race in, in real life here. Um, and there's a lot more to it than just who's the strongest. There's, um, you, there's a lot of tactics involved. You have to be, be smart. You have to know how to save your energy. It's not just a one-hour effort on the trainer. It's, it could be a four- or five-hour day, five-hour race. Uh, we have descents, so you have to be able to handle your bike. Um, if you're if you're trying to be a sprinter, you got to be able to handle your bike in the group and be and be physical and be aware. Um, so it's a, the in-person part is I would say it's 75% of everything that we need. And uh, it's actually interesting because sometimes we have some riders that their power numbers on the trainer are incredible, but that doesn't really translate to the road. And so we'll have people that we really think are going to be the strongest riders when they come to camp but then when they get here we actually see that they actually can't keep up with everybody well that was dan holt uh, from team novo nordisk and we'll be hearing more from the talent id camp uh, throughout the the vuelta um, including some of the riders who were involved in that were you there richard as a journalist or as a candidate well i'm not a diabetic daniel so i don't i don't qualify for the team um but i think uh, in I, <laughs> I was definitely there as a as a journalist um you know let's not i have been riding my bike a lot but i wouldn't i wouldn't like expectations i would have taken taken one look at the hue of the of your legs and immediately (laughs) rejected you i'm gonna get the i'm gonna i'm gonna slap on a bit of fake tan for burgos this weekend a candidate for indoor cycling you don't need to be tanned for that do you 
fine. I'm going to turn up, turn up in Burgos looking like Donald Trump. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, on with the episode and the transfer news. Um, you're going to run through, I think, you mentioned UAE and, and Bora Hansgrohe being very, very busy. Lionel, Esteban Chavez to EF, though I heard about that weeks ago. I was surprised that people were surprised. Did you not know about that as well, Daniel? I knew about that, but I, he, he'd foxed a few people by um, telling them, you know, people in his team, uh, whenever they asked where he was going, he told them he was going to learn a new language. And some had come to the conclusion that, that meant he was going to bore a hands grow up. But obviously, EF education first, the thing they're most known for is um, language schools. Wasn't wasn't a heavy enough. I wonder if they know clue. that he's joining the team purely in order to learn a new language. Um, I would have thought they'd they'd signed him for his bike racing abilities. Anyway, enough of that. Lionel, tell us some of the the galaxy of stars that have now co- congregated at UAE Team Emirates. Well, both UAE and Bora are going about this a bit like collecting panini stickers during the Tour de France, aren't they? Uh, UAE Team Emirates have signed. George. It's about the same cost, isn't it? It, it is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, they're currently sat in a car park at a service station opening the packets and realising they've got two George Bennett's and uh, three Alvaro Hodge and a couple of Pascal Ackermans. Mark Soler as well from Movistar. Um, so they've added a couple of sprinters in Hodge and Ackerman, a couple of, well, three climbers really, Bennett, Soler and Almeida. And... Uh, that's uh, going to certainly beef up their Tour de France team or their Grand Tour team um, behind Tadej Pogacar. And Bora Hansgrohe, now this one really did surprise me. Alexander Vlasov has joined them because I think we were saying about this time last year that he was already sort of tapped up by Team Ineos. Um, but he has gone to Bora Hansgrohe for next season. They've also added uh, Sergio Igita from EF, Jai Hindley, and then Marco Haller, Danny Van Poppel, and Sam Bennett, of course, is going there. And he is taking Shane Archbold and uh, another Irishman, Ryan Mullen, as well. So two teams that are going to look, uh, well, st- I think a lot stronger and quite different to this year, um, UAE and Bora Hansgrohe. And it's just interesting that those two teams are doing the majority of the hiring at the moment. Um, with not even sort of mid-ranking riders, is it? It's uh, It's people that have had significant roles in other big teams I think that the scale of Bora Hansgrohe's recruitment gives you some idea of the resources that were, were going into Peter Sagan um, and, and his entourage you know, we heard well we heard about Daniel Oss and, um, and and also members of staff and a couple of other riders that are going with him to Total Direct Energy and there were, I think there were figures quoted in the French press certainly well upward of 5 million euros a year um, that that whole uh, sort of cadre of individuals was was taking up, and um, yeah, Bora have invested it. I was I was curious to see whether they would invest anything in their classics department, and they have by signing Marco Haller, because certainly well, there's a glut of stage races now, particularly when you add add them to uh, the riders who are already there, the likes of Kelderman, Buchmann, and and now with Higita, Vlasov, and Jai Hindley. Um, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say it's a it's a bit of a bottleneck, but they're going to face some of the same sort of selection dilemmas that we've talked about in relation to um, Ineos Grenadiers. Just on 
Just on Vlasov and Ineos, and we did talk about their interest in him a few months ago. I, I believe that, well, there, there was genuine interest and there was possibly even an offer, but he had serious concerns about the competition there. And, you know, you can understand why. Um, I think he goes to Bora as someone who people think he can compete for, you know, fifth to third place in Grand Tours at the moment, but he's, he's yet to prove that he's a potential winner, certainly in the company of guys like Bernal and, and Pogacar and Roglic. And as regards UAE chaps, I mean, we, we've said this before, haven't we, that this always happens. The strongest rider over time, over the seasons, over the years, um, eventually will will probably attract the, the richest sponsor or the sponsor will end up putting more and more money in and that will lead to um, that team acquiring more and more of the best talent. Um, it's, it's interesting that um, Almeida signed such a long-term contract, five years. You know, he's a guy who you would imagine would have personal ambitions in, in the Grand Tours. Um, that might have been the offer, that's the pitch that's been made to him that, you know, one Grand Tour a year, I'll be working for Bogacar on one Grand Tour um, he'll be he'll be able to do his own thing, but um, we think Ford Molloy is going to renew there. We saw Michael arrive this year. Um, George Bennett, I mean, he was described in the team press release as a, a veteran, um, but he's only 31. You know, a lot of good years left um, left in George Bennett's legs, I'm sure. Um, so it's it's shaping up to be a really really strong outfit. Not not as strong, I don't think, still as Jumbo Visma and Ineos. Purely because of it, I would say of experience. Um, you know, there are a lot of guys there who, in their own right, have been excellent riders, um, but are now effectively being asked to become domestiques, um, and that it's not necessarily a job that they've all done before. Daniel, on UAE Team Emirates, um, the, the signing of, of, of Ackerman, uh, Hodge, does that mean Fernando Gaviria will be leaving that team, do you think? I was led to believe earlier this year at the Giro, certainly, that he was going to renew there. He was going to sign another deal, but that was a few months ago. So, mm. yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, when you look at their you look at their roster for next year and it's filling up already, um, you know, Pogacar is the obvious... Uh, leader for the for the the Tour de France but when you look at the riders they've got you mentioned the experience a lot of really young promising riders Brandon McNulty Mikel Bjerg you know might be might be Grand Tour riders in the future but the only one who um, probably could stake a claim already to leading the team into a Grand Tour is Joao Almeida Um, so you look at the the lineup and that you've probably got two or three or four more years with the likes of Bjerg and McNulty of of them riding in a supporting role and being being maybe quite happy with that. Um, they don't have perhaps a problem of Ineos Grenadiers where they've got so many already established kind of winners and leaders and having to, you know, Adam Yates, Richard Carapaz, Egan Bernal, Teo Gagan Hart, Geraint Thomas. They don't have that sort of issue, I don't think. And Almeida may well be the guy that leads them into the Giro. I mean, just a word on, on him in the Tour of Poland. What an outstanding win that was. If you've not seen the final two kilometres of that stage, stage two, really um, worth watching because... It was pretty, he, it was pretty he, difficult to... It's pretty difficult to see, even if you were watching, because the Tour of Poland stages seem to finish at sundown and you're looking right <laughs> into the light. And um, we saw three or four silhouettes 
and approaching the, the yeah, finish line. One but, of them was definitely Joel yeah, Almeida, yeah. and he crossed the line first. And he was he was absolutely brilliant. It was a great great finale to the stage. Beautiful stage. Well, it's a beautiful country, Poland. You mentioned the sprinters at UAE team Emirates there, Rich. Uh, should also mention Alexander Kristoff is leaving. He's going to Anton Marche. Um, uh, he really is a, a veteran. Um, but if Gaviria does stay, Gaviria, Ackerman and Hodge, three Grand Tours uh, per year, three sprinters who will all be you know, wanting their chance. And you have to wonder whether... And none of them will go to the Tour. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So three, three potentially for going for the other two Grand Tours. Um, this is the thing we were talking about this concentration of riders uh, in a, a sort of handful of teams and this is uh, uh, I guess the things that the riders have to weigh up you know is is Hodge leaving de Koenig for UAE giving himself more opportunities you could say the same for Ackerman uh, you know leaving Bora I mean Peter Sagan has left Bora he obviously feels um, it's time to move on to UAE Team Emirates, but is that going to give him more opportunities? It's difficult to say. It's uh, it's certainly a team that's that's now packed with um, riders who can support uh, Pogacar, but also you know people who can win stages. And and then there's Mark Soler, who you know is a well, he's a joker in the pack, isn't he? You never quite know what you're going to get from Mark Soler. But if there's a Netflix-style documentary, uh, it's box office for UAE Team Emirates. Mark Hershey as well. You forget about him. A different kind of rider, but they really are absolutely stacked, aren't they? And on the sprinters, chaps, um, don't forget Molano as well, who has been predominantly a lead-out man for Gaviria this year. Not always a a successful one at the Giro earlier this year, but he won two stages in Burgos um, last week. But... One of the things that I was um, that sort of my made my ears prick up about the Almeida deal as well was the length of it, five years. Um, another one of these super long contracts. Uh, I was talking to an agent last week who was expressing some misgivings about the length of some of these contracts. We talked about the Pogacar one going to the end of t- 2027, and um, you know we said, didn't we, line a few weeks ago? We're not sure that the, if all these very long contracts, the five and six year ones, will be necessarily. Um, served in their entire in entirety, either by the well, be, because the rider wants out, or um, you know, as we've seen in the past, team sponsors fall by the wayside. So um, that's going to be curious to see, you know, if, if there are there are transfers that take place or, or riders um, sort of expressing their disgruntlement with situations publicly, um, and and. Also, you know, we talked about this this concentration of power in the big teams. Ineos have been pretty quiet so far. Um, we talked about the likelihood of them maybe offering Carapaz a, a, a new deal. His his contract is up at the end of next year, at the end of 2022. I believe there are no moves in that direction at the moment. And But Ineos are trying to extend Egan Bernal's contract already. Bernal's deal... Or they're, they're certainly keen to get around the table and start talking about that. Um, his deal is up at the end of 2023. So they still see him very much as the man of their future. On that subject of, of you know, riders being, um, you know, lots of stars being on, on, on teams and not perhaps getting the, the opportunities that they would get on other teams. I wonder if, I've been reading a lot about Messi's transfer to PSG and and what it says about the the football uh, transfer system, but I wonder if in cycling we'll see 
riders going on loan to smaller teams. You know, it would be because one of the problems with, well, it's a problem in any sport, but particularly cycling, riders do need to race. And um, that's always been a big part of, of the sport. A rider who's not able to race is offering absolutely nothing to anybody. I wonder if we'll see, you know, um, Ad, not Adam Yates, but but some some of these certainly developing uh, promising riders um, farmed out on loan to smaller teams. Difficult, isn't it? What? How? I mean, use Adam Yates as a, a an inappropriate example, but say Adam Yates goes on loan to somebody for the Vuelta and then suddenly pulling to help uh, is. His parent team. Well, in football, of course, in football, of course, you can't. the The loan system dictates that you can't compete against your parent club mm. because, while well, they call that being, um, no, but you can still do your parent club a favour in games against other. You know, there are all sorts Smacking of three uh, own goals connotations, your right? Title rivals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are all sorts of ways in which there can be conflicts of interest and 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 problems, but. As a, as a, you know, it does, it does happen in football. So I wonder uh, if it could at some I, point happen. I, I think it's happened in cycling, but informally, um, and it's something that possibly it's the agents that are arranging. But um, I can't think of any good examples off the top of my head. It's something that I heard was going to happen with Danny Martinez when he turned professional with um, Villa Trieste in the Italian team. I, I'd heard back then that he was effectively already. Um, well, he'd been earmarked by Sky what was then Sky there was maybe even an arrangement in place for him to join them after a couple of years at Villiers uh, Triestina I'm not sure how accurate that is but I think we've seen things like that happen before or maybe without realising it at the time I think these long contracts it's interesting and I'd like to talk to some people who manage the teams about this because it seems to me that the greater risk is with the team signing a rider on for four or five years because um if the rider has a bad couple of years or uh, you know he's unable to perform at the level required they're kind of stuck with that rider and and the the the, um moving them on is going to become the team's problem you've got to find somebody who would match the salary for example uh, and be willing to take them or you know as we said uh, last week perhaps you know top up the salary to ensure the rider uh, goes to another team but doesn't lose out financially whereas the contracts even uh, you know a, a rider who signs a long contract at um, a certain value then say goes and wins a grand tour or you know clearly is worth more than the contract they're on okay there might be bonuses already um, built into uh, contracts but um you know the rider would have a, a a decent case for saying well look i'm i'm now being underpaid for years three four and five um we need to renegotiate so it's a it's a strange one whether the teams do think that they're getting a talent um for a good price by signing them on for longer i don't i don't really don't know but it's a it's certainly something that we haven't seen until relatively recently these long contracts i i think what agents say and uh, is that the, the, the salaries are graded and these con- um, contracts can actually become quite complicated in terms of the fine print and if you win or if you get this many points in this year then your salary goes up to this or that and so on and so forth. So there are there are um, sort of assurances on that front. But it, we talk about UAE and you know they've been the most active in giving out these long contracts of late. You know we talked about Ayuso as well, who has a very long contract, the Spanish teenage phenom, and now with um, Almeida. But they were really one of the first ones to get their hands kind of burnt by doing precisely this with Fabio Aru, 
because they signed him on a three-year contract and they would have loved to have got rid of him after a year and a half. But um, he ended up, particularly the last year of his three-year deal, they were reportedly paying him over two million euros. And when you know his market value was possibly a tenth of that. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That said, PK, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Beer 52. Now, if you like craft beers, how about getting a free case of eight Chicago beers from Beer 52? All you need to do is pay the postage, which is £5.95. I have got a beer here called Lil Dorado. I thought that was appropriate with the, the Welter just a few days away that loosely translates i guess as little golden little golden one and uh well let's see what it tastes like it's a hazy ipa it says so i'm expecting it to be uh, light fresh citrusy perhaps and that is a delicious beer uh, to enjoy at the end of a very hot day on the vuelta um, if you would like to sign up for Beer 52, it's a beer club and each month you can get eight delicious craft beers delivered to your door, plus a couple of snacks and a copy of the award-winning beer magazine Ferment. Uh, there's no commitment, so you can just take your free case if you want, try the beers and see what you think. And if it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Uh, each month, Beer 52 takes you to a different place and the latest collection is... All of these beers from uh, Illinois, Chicago, the Windy City. And uh, this is from a brewery called Penrose. It's not a beer I've heard of before, but that's the beauty of Beer 52. It opens your eyes and broadens your horizons to uh, beers from all around the world. I've had in the past Belgian collections, German collections, this one from Chicago in the United States. And as I say, eight Craft beers delivered to your door for just £5.95 posted charge. Go to beer52.com slash cycle to claim your free case now. That's beer52.com slash cycle. And it's beer52.com slash cycle. Cheers. Here's to the Vuelta. Well, chaps, we're looking ahead to the Vuelta, which starts in Burgos on Saturday. And Burgos was the scene of, uh, I guess, the, the last big rehearsal for the Vuelta for a lot of the, the, the GC favourites. And it, it was quite an interesting race, wasn't it? Um, the You know, it looked uh, for a while as if Roman Bardet was going to um, announce his return, I suppose, to the top. But the race in the end was blown apart by... Mikel Landa and Bahrain victorious um, but there was kind of uh, you know lots of encouragement for lots of different riders I thought you know Hugh Carthy winning that final stage um, Pavel Sivakov up there if, if anyone wasn't perhaps happy with how Burgos turned out it was Ineos Grenadiers whose riders um, some of them came off in a, a crash and were a little bit hurt um, but it, it didn't offer firm conclusions, did it? But it did point to some of the favourites for the Vuelta being in pretty good form ahead of the race. Yeah, I think it, it pointed to the fact that Bahrain victorious, although they might not have the favourites, um, they do have Mikel Landa, but they might well have the, the most imposing unit um, in terms of, well setting the pace in the mountains, particularly with Padun, Gino Maida looks to be on really good form. Caruso, who was second in the Giro, of course, and then Landa. But they've also 
drafting Jack Hay to the team, Walt Pauls, and they're going to have Jan Tratnik as well, who we sort of fused over um, after his performance at the Olympic road race. So everyone's talking about Ineos and all of the talent that they're taking to the Vuelta with Carapaz, Bernal, Adam Yates, Pitcock, um, Sivakov, and so on and so forth. But Bahrain looks super, super strong. And then you've also got um, Jumbo Visma, who weren't in Burgos, but, um, well, we, we all expect Roglic to be firing, don't we? And on Ineos' performance, um, Chaps, I suppose it, it bears pointing out, this was a very rare short stage race that they've not won this year. And um, I, don't, I don't know if that will be cause for concern. I thought Bernal looked as though he was growing throughout the throughout the week. Um, he wasn't particularly strong or he didn't look, that good on Picon Blanco, the first mountain stage, which will be the well, the, the venue for stage three of the Vuelta. The Vuelta's finishing on top of the climb, whereas Burgos finished down the other side. But Bernal didn't look great there, but then he looked as though he was coming into form on the Lagunas de Neila climb, um, which also told us that Hugh Carthy, who was a podium finisher last year, will be um, he will be a contender again, I think, for the podium. So what are we expecting from the overall battle? Do we see it as another showdown between Primoz Roglic and Richard Carapaz as it was last year and if they can't sort it out on the road maybe they could play a game of uh, conquers with their Olympic gold medals or is Egan Bernal winner winner plays Tom Pitcock <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um, or is Egan Bernal going to be the Ineos Grenadiers uh, you know protected rider or the, the, the sort of the, the first amongst equals um, when it comes to the GC uh, obviously won the Giro earlier on this season, so could uh, double up by adding the Vuelta. Is it just between those sort of two or three, or do we see Lander finally putting together, you know, a serious um, GC, you know, consistent GC without having the sort of the, the 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 moments of weakness that have been his undoing in the past? Or Jack Haig. I mean, I spoke to Rolf Aldag after Jack Haig was forced out of the tour, and he could not have been more effusive in his assessment of how Haig was going and how he felt he was growing into the role of leader of the team. Um, you know, I, I don't know what kind of form he's going to be in after his after his crash at the the tour. Mitch Docker bumped into him in Andorra and he'd, he his hand arm was in a sling and he seemed pretty beaten up. So we don't know what sort of shape he's he's been in. And it's that old question, isn't it, of whether a strong team can beat a strong individual rider, but the team with the most to lose in a sense is Ineos Grenadiers because they are throwing everything at this you know and you look at their their roster Salvatore Puccio and Dylan Van Barla are the only riders who are not potentially winners of the race and if you want to be fanciful about it um you know they're they're gonna they're gonna we have know a lot what of work to do. happens when you're fanciful about Ineos yeah, no, riders. Yeah we do know yeah yeah they're gonna have a lot of work to do aren't aren't they those two but um it's hard to know. I mean, Carapaz is coming off the Olympics and the Tour de France. Bernal's, you know, been laying pretty low since the since the Giro. Um, Sivakov is going pretty well, although he's definitely in a riding in a support capacity there. Adam Yates is the interesting one for me because, you know, he's hardly raced this year. He's ridden twenty nine. He's raced twenty nine days this year. When he has raced, you know, second at UAE Tour, um, first in Catalonia. Uh, fourth in the Basque Country. He had pretty much three months off after Liège-Bastogne-Liège for his pro team, um, which for a rider of his stature and 
with the results he had in the first part of the season is pretty amazing. You know, it does highlight that issue we were talking about in the last part about um, riders who are who are good and on big salaries not getting enough racing. Um, he was also at the start of the year, remember, um, touted as Ineos Grenadiers' leader going into the Vuelta when they announced their plans for the year. It was very clear Bernal was going to be the leader at the at the Giro and Yates was going to be the leader at the Vuelta. And that seems to have changed um, in, in the messaging, certainly, that uh, there's now, certainly Bernal is probably the, the leader, but Carapaz is in a very strong supporting role. And there hasn't been much talk of Yates at all. And I, I can't imagine that he's entirely happy about that situation. He'll want to do something himself at the at the Giro and not just right at the Vuelta, rather. Not just right in support of Bernal or possibly Carapaz. You can imagine Adam Yates sitting in the reception of the, I don't know where Ineos would be staying, the Ibis, in, Ibis Hotel in Burgos on Thursday, playing on his Xbox and seeing them all you know, traipse through the door. The Carapaz, oh, not, not him as well. <laughs> but oh, not, not him as well. Um, yeah. Rich, you forgot about Narvaez. He's the other guy, um, the other sort of neutral, um, or the other guy who'll be working there mm. primarily as a, as a workhorse although of course he's Carapaz's best mate I mean the, the thing about the team is basically the first person to crash is is the first one on bottle duty by the looks of it I mean that's uh, you know we by having so many riders who could finish in the top 10 I mean you're right Rich five or perhaps even six of them could finish in the top 10 couldn't they I mean that's a perhaps overreaching a little bit when it comes to Tom Pidcock but we just really don't know and it will be interesting to see what kind of debut Grand Tour experience he gets and uh, you know whether he is you know how he finds riding on the front for somebody else I mean you know it, it may well come to that but uh, it's certainly a, a team that uh, is well, the strongest in the race, I would have said. Um, the question is whether they will have the, the strongest rider or whether somebody else can um, you know, take, take them on. Uh, what about um, the likes of Alexander Vlasov at Astana and Enric Mas and Miguel Angel Lopez at Movistar? They look like the other um, serious contenders for the for sort of top five, maybe even podium finishes. Well, for Movistar, of course, this is um, always one of the most important races of the season, the La Vuelta. I was reading a piece, a comment piece in a Spanish newspaper, uh, Diario Sport, a few weeks ago, which was interesting, very critical of Movistar and how they've used um, the Vuelta as a sort of last chance saloon, somewhere to drown their sorrows after the Tour de France or to, to pick up, uh, mop up crumbs of of comfort or consolation after the Tour de France and this has meant generally that they have sent their A team both to the Tour de France and La Vuelta and it's meant that they've had you know they've had young potentially um, promising stage racers sort of waiting in the wings who have not got opportunities in La Vuelta because um, they have pivoted back to the Valverdes and the Masses in this case and the Supermans and and that's what's happening here. I was I was curious to note the that Johan Jacobs, the Swiss rider, young Swiss rider, has been selected. He's the real outlier in their team. He's not a, a GC rider by any stretch of the imagination. He's a classics rider who actually lives in Belgium. And I think they've picked him very much with an eye on stages, um, I think it's stages four, five and eight, all of which could be blown apart by crosswinds. Um, there's a stage at Albacete, which is a bit of a, a graveyard of 
um, Vuelta aspirants chances or has been in the past because there are always wins in that part of, of Spain so that's a, an interesting one um, uh, just on the course as well guys um, the, the lack of time trialing the seven kilometers prologue a very technical seven kilometers prologue to kick things off in Burgos and then uh, final time trial 30 kilometers or just over 30 kilometers but we all we know we've said it many times that Rog does not have a great record in final time trials so the time trial should play in his favor certainly against Carapaz and Bernal and Landa but his advantage might be reduced by the fact that it comes at the end and then the summit finishes or the uphill finishes um, what scope is there for the roglification of this Vuelta, i.e., um, you know, the the three, four, five stages that he has won over the last couple of years, or he's picked up bonus seconds in as a result of you know, his his now famous finishing burst on little uphill climbs and there aren't that many of them this year the the final climbs tend to be or they're a little bit longer and more congenial to the pure climbers but there are a couple and um, there's certainly one just outside Valencia and a place called Cuyera in the first week which has got Rog's name written all over it but um, it's a really interesting route some big mountain stages um, the the Gamonteiro on the in the last week in Asturias which has sort of been been built the the Angliru's kind of Siamese twin maybe even harder than the Angliru and then it's got a classic we've got a classic mountaintop finisher Covadonga as well so there's a bit of everything and um, and I wouldn't say anyone is really any of those contenders we've mentioned is kind of ruled out or necessarily disadvantaged by the route per se you use the phrase last chance saloon with regard to Movistar there they really are because they're one of four world tour teams yet to get a Grand Tour stage victory this season. The other three being Astana, Groupama, FDJ and Team DSM. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are five teams who are uh, looking to complete the Grand Tour Grand Slam of winning a stage in all three of this season's Grand Tours. Alpacin Fenix, UAE, Bahrain, Bora Hansgrohe and AG2R. I remember Andrea Vendrame and uh, Ben O'Connor uh, won stages of the, the Giro and the Tour respectively, whether they can uh, add a Vuelta stage win there or not, I don't know. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that Movistar and Astana, Astana sorry, are without a stage win in either the Giro, the Tour or the Vuelta, um, I mean, that's pretty remarkable for teams that are basically stage race outfits with stage racers um, you know, throughout their rosters. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport, our long-term sponsor. Um, if you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. That's SISCP25 at Science and Sport. You've been sampling your SIS products, Lionel. You were mentioning the Beta Fuels in uh, an episode I listened to at the weekend. Well, the Beta Fuels, uh, we've had some Beta Fuel sent through to go out in the prizes for our Tour de France competition winners. I'm still waiting for some gels from Science in Sport to complete those packs, but the boxes are partially packed, ready to go out to our four competition winners. And uh, yeah, I'll be next time I'm out on the bike, I'll be mixing up some Beta Fuel. Certainly. Well, well, we'll talk about our plans for the Vuelta in a moment. Um, but one thing we do at every Grand Tour and have done for the last few years is 
with Stacy Snyder, our ceramicist friend in Virginia in the US, um, sell mugs, cups, and uh, well, cappuccino sets and gelato bowls now uh, to raise money for good causes. Um, now, uh, we've raised lots of money for lots of very good causes over the last few years, um, but for this Vuelta, we're going to go with a good cause suggested by Stacy herself, which feels very appropriate. We might do something completely different next year. We're talking about maybe um, doing something something new. Um, but for this Vuelta, we thought it would be wholly appropriate to raise money for a, a fund suggested by Stacy. It's called Phoenix Bikes. Their motto is educating youth, promoting bicycling, building community. They're located in an area of dense, low-income housing and provide opportunities for youth to learn bike maintenance and to earn a bike of their own. They go to each of the local middle and high schools and offer uh, after-school bike building programs. Stacy's son did it when he was in middle school. Um, so it, it, Stacy knows this organization well, is a great supporter of Phoenix Bikes, and uh, we're very happy to support uh, Phoenix Bikes through the sales of the, the cups and mugs and the gelato bowls. First batch of which will go on sale on Saturday. Um, we will release details of exactly when and how to buy these. They always sell out, so you have to be quick. Um, but we'll release details of exactly of how to how to buy those later in the week through our newsletter, which you can sign up for at thecyclingpodcast.com and on social media. What the mugs are not good for, I would suggest, chaps, is drinking wine. Um, this was going to shock you to discover that I am very picky about the receptacles from which one drinks wine. And... We have got another cycling podcast, Grand Tour Wine Selection, Vuelta España Selection, haven't we? Um, in this case, curated by Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars, and we actually posted an episode, didn't we, yesterday? That was me in discussion with Greg and his resident um, Spanish wine maestro, Angus McNabb, who is actually, believe it or not, Spanish. Um he's about well 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 yeah well 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 indeed rich and you can well you'll be able to find that on our feed won't you chaps is that the right terminology um yeah on the cycling podcast feed so you can buy a case of of the the Vuelta collection. He's still also selling cases of the Giro and Tour de France and the Tour collection. Yep. And we've yeah. mapped out, well, a viticultural route which goes alongside the main Vuelta route. So a lot of the wineries um, from which the wines come are just off the route or almost on the route. We've got a nice white Rioja, Ribera del Duero and Albariño, lots of other good stuff on there. Um, more details and you can order the wine from www.dvine that's D the letter vinecellars.com and yeah, you'll find everything you need there. Daniel, what's your favourite wine? French, Italian or Spanish? <laughs> Can you not what, give me some favorite, other qualifier? Do you have a favourite country? Do you have a favourite country? Um, for overall? the purposes of this podcast, today's podcast, I would say Spanish wine is um, very <laughs> exciting at the moment and I'm very much looking forward to the wines of the Vuelta, Richard, some of which you will um, have the distinction of sharing with me at the weekend when we're in Spain, when really? we're in Burgos. Can't wait. Can't wait. There's also, there, are um, a couple of restaurants. there are a couple of restaurants I've got my eye on. Maybe we'll talk about this at the weekend. Um, 
a few years ago on Spanish TV they they premiered what in the UK I think is known as MasterChef and in Italy is also known as MasterChef I can't remember what it's called I think it's called Top Chef in Spain actually and the, the guys who finished first and second both went on to open restaurants in Burgos and we might be dining at one of them at the weekend Lionel, am I allowed to mention my holiday visit to Laurent Perrier at this point? You certainly can. Yeah. You certainly can, yes. It looked like you were having well, a nice da- time. <laughs> yeah, very much so. David Hesketh, good friend of the podcast, um, who entertained us when we were in Epernay a couple of years ago at the Tour de France. Um, I am to be staying in Tours-sur-Marne, the home of Laurent Perrier, so I, I dropped him a, a line, and we were invited to a beautiful tasting and tour of the Laurent Perrier headquarters there through the cellars, uh, 12 kilometers of underground cellars. It was an extraordinary experience. And if you're there in that area, um, I recommend trying to go for a visit yourself. It was it was absolutely brilliant. And a big thanks to David Hesketh for arranging that. Yeah, I was very envious. But On with the cycling. Indeed. Back to the cycling. Well, chaps, another thing that I'll be... Um, doing from the Vuelta when we're at the Vuelta is uh, giving 18 my 18 names uh, I think we're calling it Daniels why not just a random number no no let's not talk about that I was horrified by that Um, Daniels so the 18 Richard there is a you know I I will give my criteria these are the 18 most likely riders to win the particular day stage I'll be doing that every morning um but i'm just looking at my list of potential winners of the race overall and i haven't got to 18 um they are as as follows see if you agree or disagree so rog carapaz bernal landa padun mark padun adam yates superman enric mass hugh carthy vlasov and chicone is my wild card what do you think of that um, Yisagire, so how many is that? Yon that's Yisag- not 18 No, it's not yet. 18. That's what I said. I said that it wasn't 18. Yeah. How many is that? It's about, well, it's, I think it's 10. I think what we no, learned here is 11. that the top 18 predictions has to be 18, except when Daniel decides it can be fewer yeah, or, or more. Exactly. Um, yeah. Just uh, Alejandro Valverde, do you think he'll win a stage? This is the 30th Grand Tour start for Valverde. Uh, he's been racing uh, grand tours since i think the first one was 2002 he's in the lineup for movistar he's done 551 days of grand tour uh, racing in his career um, so if he had started on january the first and rode every one of those days consecutively it would take him till the following july 5th almost 18 months his grand tour career is longer than a pandemic I mean, but, some would uh, say his 41. grand tour career is a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. I'll leave. Uh, I mean, imagine how many more days it would have been had he not had a couple of years holiday in the middle. Yeah. Well, maybe he wouldn't still be going if he hadn't had that couple of years holiday in the middle. Very true. I suspect. Very true. You know, will he win a stage? Um, well, I, I think it'll be tough. Um, it's it's not his last Vuelta España we know that now don't we it's not supposed to be he's going to ride for another year with Movistar other stage win- other other nailed on stage winners chaps um, well the sprinting is going to be really interesting with the main the main contenders there being Arnaud Demar who's not had a good season 
um, after his Anus Mirabilis last year. Um, he's got his whole lead out, his first choice lead out train, um, FDJ Group Armour. And Fabio Jakobsen, of course, who before his awful accident at the Tour of Poland last year um, had thrived in La Vuelta Espana before. Yeah, um, they've got quite an interesting team to kind of quick step, haven't they? They do seem to be putting a lot of support around Jakobsen and he does, well, he looked recently like he's he's returning to his previous level. So that would be a great story, wouldn't it, if he could go to the Vuelta and win a stage. Um, James Knox is also, looks like he's getting an opportunity there um, to, you know, to see what he can do. He's ridden well in the Vuelta in the past and he will be keeping an audio diary for us once again. As will Pavel Sivakov, uh, another former diarist, will also be keeping a diary for us again at the at the Vuelta, and perhaps one more rider as well, still to be announced. Lionel, we were talking. Still to be asked. We were, to be honest, we were talking earlier about how you tend to qualify Vueltas in terms of colours, um, and I think this pertains to landscape mainly. But you were asking what colour we thought this Vuelta was. Your what? What are your? What's your palette for qualifying Vueltas? Well, um, green and brown mainly. Last year we had quite a lot of green, didn't we? Because well, it was later in the season, of course, and was uh, uh, held predominantly up north. Uh, the welter of the sort of two thousands to me are just a just a palette of browns, from light brown to sort of dark brown. Uh, lots of stages where the countryside was scorched, and uh, being a sort of um, even pastier than Richard, um, I sometimes when I've been to the Vuelta I've attempted to get trapped on the coast where I I turn very pink in the sun uh, because it's you know it's August it's peak holiday time and on the costas uh, I like to sort of dive um, you know from from tree to awning getting some much needed shade because I, I do tend to turn the colour of the Malia Rosa after that 20. pictured you as Tarzan there, uh, <laughs> Lionel. Well not swinging, swinging just sort tree of to tree. darting like a sort of overweight lizard. I, w- I would suggest this year's Vuelta goes something like chocolate, strawberry, pistachio. So I would say um, pretty brown the first week, pink. Um, second week, we're after the first rest day, when we're right down in Andalucía um, those next few days. And then up through Extremadura and into the green stuff um, for the final week, Asturias, um, a bit of Cantabria and, and Galicia. Well, I'll be there for the chocolate and the pistachios, uh, uh, Daniel. You'll be there for for all three. And, uh, well, between the three of us, we'll be teaming up to bring you nightly coverage of the Vuelta and nine episodes of Kilometre Zero as well. The usual usual Grand Tour coverage. I I Um, mentioned the cuisine of Burgos earlier. It's famous for a blood sausage called Morcilla. I thought that Lionel would probably be getting involved with that. He'd been down in Burgos. Um, Not my kind of thing. It's made with blood, uh, onion, fat and rice, I believe. It's just a black pudding. Despite that description, it's very, very delicious. There's a bit more rice in it than a black pudding. Mm. It's a bit bit more starchy. That's true. And less meaty. True. But very, very tasty. But Adam Adam Yates from Berry will be um, seeking out the black (laughs) pudding. I sense a new nickname coming on <laughs> if he does well in these opening stages. Uh, listen, um, should we turn our attention briefly back to the Olympics? Um, we've got an interview with Ethan Hayter coming up. Before we hear from him, um, and he 
he won a silver medal in the Madison, of course, with Matt Walls. Behind Michael Morkov, who won the Madison, of course, with Lassie Norman Hansen. Um, a very popular win for Morkov, I think. A guy who has supported so many riders over the years to get a bit of glory for himself was, was nice to see. Um, before we hear from Ethan Hayter, let, I'm back, so slow radio returns. Um, everybody will be delighted to hear. This, this, is, this is lovely and it, and it fits in nicely because it's from David Gilchrist. And it's um, he had his phone securely in his jersey pocket, recording sound during a points race um, on his local velodrome, which is the Jerry Baker Memorial Velodrome in Redmond, Washington. Hopefully, you will find it interesting. Um, I do. I, this is great. Um, we even hear David Gilchrist's name being uh, being called by the announcer midway through. I spoke to Ethan Hayter, a silver medalist with Matt Walls in the Madison, on Wednesday. He was at Hernhill Track in South London, where he cut his teeth as a young rider. Any background noise is that of riders whizzing past because the track league was going on as we spoke. The 22-year-old Hayter has had a great season on the road as well, and he's going on to the Tour of Norway, the Tour of Britain, and the World Championships if selected. Before that, here he is reflecting on the Olympics, including that Team Pursuit semi-final against Denmark. How do you reflect on Tokyo? I mean, you know, I guess you went out there with, with two medal chances. You come home with a silver medal from a great race. You know, the Madison was a great race to watch and, and three great sort of medal-winning teams. Um, are you happy with that? Because there must have been disappointment in the team pursuit as well. Yeah, it was It was really hard. You know, we invest so much in it um, as a team. And obviously everyone you're with, we were all in for the team pursuit and it, it didn't work out with for a few reasons um, and it was quite hard to recover from that but I knew Matt was going really well after just becoming Olympic champion and uh, we were fully committed I mean the team pursuit did, you know what were your feelings after that very controversial semi-final you know to go out in that way um, had the had the decision been made to, to you know for GB to go through and for Denmark to be disqualified would you have been happy with that or were you disappointed anyway with, with the ride uh, we knew putting Charlie in was a risk. He'd not done. Someone didn't realise Charlie could ride, basically, and that was a bit of a mistake that we obviously paid for. Charlie was not himself, but it was a risk we had to take after Ed had a bad day the day before. We knew we had to go faster, basically, and uh, yeah, this kind of mixed feelings about that semi-final because. Whereas we didn't deserve to be in the gold final, um, I thought we would be 
just because they didn't let us finish. <laughs> Basically, because they crashed into Charlie, we didn't finish and we ended up in eighth place, which I think we didn't deserve to be in eighth either, if that makes sense. Um, so I, a lot of us actually thought Denmark would be disqualified for causing a crash for the opponent, but at the end of the day, they did deserve to beat us in that ride, so it's just a bit of a shame for Charlie, who got rear-ended and they got no consequences for it. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. Um, it was an interesting one. Yeah, a very interesting one. Uh, you picked yourself up and, uh, you know, went into that, that Madison, very competitive uh, Madison field, as it always is. Very hard to follow on TV, uh, unless you're in the track and able to watch everything. It's, it's hard to follow Madison. How was how did you find the race itself? I mean, they're always chaotic. How 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 did this one compare? Yeah, you know, we actually we had to get up the next the next day after after that team pursuit uh, and ride for seventh to eighth. It's the rules, and mm. I was a bit like, well, do I even want to do it? Blah blah blah. I've got the Madison, but you know, we got up and we made a good showing for ourselves. We went a couple of seconds quicker. Obviously, Charlie was still not himself after not having the prep and. And then crashing and being ridden into, and he went down quite hard actually. Mm. Um, but we picked ourselves up, and that, that brought a bit of. We finished on a better note, you know. Uh, it was seventh place, but it wasn't. We showed ourselves a bit more, basically, and put a good day together. And then the the Madison year is a mental race, isn't it? We uh, we started on the. Well, we kind of thought we'll start on the front foot and go for a few of the early sprints because. Being at the front of the Madison is sometimes actually easier than trying to save energy in the middle. So we got on the scoreboard and we're in the gold medal position for a long section of the race. Um, and then we both had a bit of a rough patch because we'd invested quite a lot at the start. Mm. Um, we were passengers and it just kind of worked out that we started scoring points again as we came around a bit and uh, it was enough to win a, win a silver medal which was, uh, we were both really happy with. And I think the Danes, you know, like we were only three points off the Danes, but they were the strongest team there. So it was well-deserved. Well, and, and, and Michael Morkov has been trying for a long time in that event. You and, you and Matt Walls, both very young. I mean, do you see yourselves as a, a long-term partnership? Do you look towards Paris? Do you think you'll still be riding the track uh, at the next Olympics? Or, or do you see yourself focusing more on the road in the coming years? Uh, I will do more on the road in the coming years, but I think uh, the track's always going to be an option, isn't it? It's especially something like the Madison, where, for, for example, they're very strict on team sizes at the Olympics, which is why you have to be quite a specialist a lot of the time. But say I did the road race or the time trial, for example, the uh, you could do the Madison as well, mm. which would obviously be a bit of an interesting mix, but I think it would work really well for someone like me mm. and maybe Matt as well and... Uh, I really don't know. I mean, mm. they could even they could even change the events for the Olympics next time around. I'm not not exactly sure when that happens because they've done it in the past, haven't they? They certainly have, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, Michael Morkov made a, a very strong case for the the continued inclusion of the Madison, didn't he? Um, and it, you know, it was he did, it, yes. Yeah. It's a uh, it's a great event, isn't it? I've, I've had so many people saying how crazy it is, but how good it was to watch at the same time. Great stuff. Well, listen, Ethan, I'll let you get back to Hearn Hill there and uh, soaking up like, that atmosphere that I can hear um, in the background. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a youth racing at the moment. It's, oh, uh, great. They're, they're all fully committed. <laughs> yeah, 
I'm sure they are. And you got your silver medal with you, have you? Uh, yeah, it's actually uh, it's around my neck. I've just been on London News. So uh, oh, nice. It's, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's really strange actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, and anything else on your program at the end of the year? Yeah, I think uh, I might I might do the road worlds depending on how I come through the rest of the season. You know, if I'm not good enough, then I'm happy to hold my hand up and say I'm not good enough. But uh, the road worlds in Belgium would be pretty cool, and the GB team will be strong and hoping to uh, win. I think. And I might have a crack at the time trial as well, if, if that suits. That was Ethan Hater, our silver medalist at the Olympic Games. Um, I mean, we'll not we'll not go back over the Olympic Games. You covered that um, very well over the last couple of weeks, chaps. But uh, the the whole subject of technology is interesting. And I thought watching the track racing that it almost looks like it, it it's a different sport in a way. Um, the, the 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 changes in bikes and handlebars and things seem to be. Um, accelerating quite rapidly and that might be something that UCI take an interest in but and I'm personally not I'm not a, a huge fan of some of the developments in, in bikes and so on but if you want to hear a different view listen to the latest episode of the service course because Tom Wally and Lizzie Banks discuss this and I discussed this with Lizzie the other day as well she's she's very excited about seeing for example the the hope bike that was developed for the British team with the very wide stays um, on the road and she thinks it might even appear um, at the World Championships possibly um, in some way shape or form Um, and I thought her discussion about that with Tom Wally in the latest service course which is also about the the Japanese Kieran was absolutely fascinating so have a listen to that and we're releasing uh, this week as well um, our friend special it's Kate Wagner's final diaries from the Tour de France Um, and uh, she recorded three episodes of Columbus Zero during the tour. Um, it was very well received. And her latest, her final diary from Tour de France is out for friends of the podcast this week. So if you want to immerse yourself in that, um, it's really good. And you can sign up as a friend of the podcast at thecyclingpodcast.com. Just a mention for Mitch Docker's latest Life in the Peloton episode because he's having a little siesta while the Vuelta is on, or the or rather the podcast is. Uh, he's caught up with Ashley Moorman Passio, and that episode is online now and notable really for Ashley Moorman Passio's description of the women's road race at the Olympics. Really fascinating insight in that episode of Life in the Peloton. Talking to Mitch. Did they not take each other on recently up Rocca Corba, Mitch and Ashley? Uh, sort of. Um, well, you, you'll hear about Ashley's latest exploits on Rocca Corba, the climb uh, not far I mean, from Mitch Girona. had no chance. I think he knew well, that well, going into it. You know, don't, let's not, Sorry, let's not, let's off, not spoil, uh, spoil the start of the episode. Especially after a week on the second <laughs> podcast itinerary at the Tour de France, that train, training regimen. <laughs> well, that was a nice bit of... Nice bit of <laughs> nice bit of tapering for him there um, gone, about riding his bike gone up two kit Plus. sizes after a week on the Richard Moore <laughs> Tour de France diet <laughs> will we have a, will we have just another Charlie Magalius if you're listening will we have just joke. another will we will we <laughs> oh dear oh excellent excellent that's a terrible impression <laughs> Mitch Docker um, Daniel <laughs> Uh, anyway, listen. We should wrap things up. We're off to Burgos at the weekend, Daniel. Anything else? Are you going to tell us the the name of our Vuelta coverage? Well, Rich, our Vuelta coverage this year will go by the title, the name, the theme Vueltas y Revueltas, which means twists and turns. 
and we will be covering charting, chronicling all of the twists and turns and lots of other interesting things. Look forward to a daily feature, chaps, little teaser here called Pinchos. Do you know what Pinchos are? Richard, you should know what you've been to that part of the world. Pinchos of course, e- yeah. We've we've done we've covered pinchos, pinchos at length. E pinchatos. Do you know what pinchatos are? Punctures. That's all I'll say for now. Great food and punctures. Excellent. Uh, well, that's all for this week. Um, great to be back in the podcasting saddle. Only a little bit rusty, quite rusty actually. But I'll get into the swing of things at the Vuelta, and I'm looking forward to it. So we'll reconvene on Saturday evening after the opening time trial then. We shall. Great. Thanks very much, Lionel. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, chaps. You've been listening to The Cycling Podcast with Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib, and Richard Moore. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Adam Bowie.